Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. People can go in one of two different directions when it comes to the devil. Right? In some cultures, people are very, very afraid of and almost obsessed with the devil. And people can live almost controlled by fear because they're worried about putting a foot wrong and doing something that will anger demonic or dark or cosmic or ancestral powers. And it can make people really live in fear. They'd be very, very obsessed with demonic power. In other cultures, like the culture that we live in in 21st century London, you have the opposite problem. So British people today, by and large, don't really believe in the devil at all. We don't really believe it. We don't have a category for radical evil like that. And we generally believe evil as something that can be solved for a human being through a combination of education, state funding, rehab, therapy, whatever it may be. We, we generally, if we see something very, very evil, we'll assume I'm sure that that's fixable uh, in, a kind of, in material ways because that's the categories we use. The odd thing is that, of course, as a result, even though our culture doesn't have a theology of Satan, we're actually quicker to demonize other people than many cultures are because we don't have a belief in a demon or a devil. So we, in in a way, have to make the person who's doing the thing we don't like into the demon or the devil because we don't have another way of accounting for why they've done something very evil. And that's why I think in our generation, people are so quick to accuse each other, particularly if they don't know each other, of being Nazis. Because we, we don't believe in the devil anymore. So instead of talking about Satan, we talk about Hitler. We're really saying, I've got to find a way of saying how evil what you're saying is, but I don't believe in Satan, so I'd better use this category instead. And so people 
if you know, the, the, that, there's that rule, isn't there, in social media debate, that it's only a matter of time before somebody accuses someone else of being a Nazi. And in some ways, it's, it's a, it should wake up us up to the challenges of talking about evil without a category of Satan or the demonic. The interesting thing you find, if you read people who lived through World War II and actually witnessed what the Nazis had done and many other great evils in that generation, they're often much more aware of demonic, dark, cosmic forces than we are. So you read Tolkien and you find his novels are obviously shot through with the character of Sauron and Saruman, these dark powers that almost take over people because they were very aware in their generation hang on, an awful lot of ordinary people in this country or that country have been almost seized by a power beyond their control and done unspeakable things. And that could have been me if I was in the wrong circumstances. And so there must be some darker power that I'm aware of in this world. And so they wrote stories like The Lord of the Rings, or you see it in George Orwell with 1984, An Animal Farm. You see it in Hannah Arendt. You see it in Graham Greene, the uh, marvellous Catholic novelist who, he said, I've, I've never understood why people who can swallow the enormous improbability of a personal God boggle at a personal devil. And it was his way of saying, you know, lots of people in our culture believe in God. Why don't they also believe in the devil who in some ways has so, become so obvious in the last generation? C.S. Lewis, who lived through this period as well, he wrote this in the Screwtape Letters. It's a great comment. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, that's the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Demons don't care whether you're obsessed with them or whether you don't believe in them. Either way, they say, that's great. Human beings are going to be enslaved by us in either scenario. And as Paul ends this letter to the Ephesians, which is so rich and beautiful as we've been studying it this term, Paul gives us a better way forward. Paul is not obsessed with demonic power. He spends most of the letter ignoring it completely and simply saying that Christ has been seated far above all demonic powers. But he does, as the letter ends, he does recognise it, demonic power, and he teaches us how to fight it. Now, it's a very famous passage that we've just heard read, and rightly so. But I want us to notice three things that Paul teaches us about spiritual warfare in these words. He teaches us what we need to know, what we need to wear, and what we need to do. Right? What we need to know, what we need to wear or put on, and what we need to do. Here's what you need to know, Paul would say, in spiritual warfare. You need to know that your fight is not against flesh and blood, but it's actually against spiritual forces of evil. That's what Paul says. You've you got to know that, right? That's the foundation for a Christian vision of spiritual warfare. You're not really in battle or struggle or wrestling with human beings. I mean, you, of course, you have, to do, you have to deal with human beings because that's, what you, that's what, who's in front of you. But ultimately, your battle is against the spiritual powers behind them. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for, because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over the present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God, right? Put on the armour of God because your struggle's not against human beings, it's against spiritual powers. So, put on the armour of God. And Paul knows what he's talking about here. He's been imprisoned, flogged, beaten, stoned by human beings. 
So he's not speaking as an armchair spiritual warrior here who's just sort of sounding off from the comfort of a room. He has experienced persecution like none of us have. But he knows that the people who are doing it are not his ultimate enemy. Paul knows that those people who were doing it, who were throwing rocks at his head or beating him or whipping his back with the 39 lashes, he knows that those people ultimately are being manipulated by spiritual powers in order to do something that the spiritual powers want them to do. So they're like orcs in The Lord of the Rings or they're like the Death Eaters in the Harry Potter series. They're they're not really the ultimate agent of evil here. They are doing, of course, they're doing unpleasant things and you have to stand firm against them. But ultimately behind them is another power who's trying to get those human beings to do something to destroy you. And Paul knows that from personal experience in his own life. Because, of course, Paul himself is not only someone who has been persecuted, but before that he was a persecutor himself. So he knows what it's like to be on both sides of the line. And so he knows what it's like to feel like he, to realize that he has been persecuting the church under the influence of dark powers. And then to find himself being liberated from the devil's power by the blood of Christ. So Paul is able to speak both about his own experience of persecuting and of being persecuted in such a way as to, place the blame squarely on cosmic powers and saying that's where the struggle's really happening. I've made reference to Lord of the Rings more than once already, so I hope you'll forgive me if you just watch this clip of spiritual warfare. It's a brilliant picture of spiritual warfare from the movie The Two Towers, and I hope it will speak for itself as you watch it. Don't you just love the way that Gandalf says, too long have you sat in the shadows, I release you. Breathe free air, my friend. You see, as you watch that scene, you can see that the enemy with whom Gandalf is dealing is not ultimately the old king. The enemy is the one who has enslaved the old king and from whom Theoden needs to be delivered. And that's not always how you and I tend to think of ourselves. We tend to think of ourselves as being, I'm a free agent, I do what I want. But outside of Christ, Paul would say, you're just like Theoden. You are enslaved by another power who doesn't want you to have any freedom at all. And if you're going to find freedom, you need to be liberated from his power and brought into the freedom of the children of God. We don't tend to think like that. We tend to think, oh, no, that's not what it's like. Before I was a Christian, I I needed forgiveness of sin, but I wasn't enslaved by the devil. That sounds awful. And Paul says, yes, you were. That's exactly what the gospel is, that you have not only been forgiven from your sin, you've been liberated from Satan. The Heidelberg Catechism, question one. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I'm not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. It's like we needed somebody to come up to us and say, Andrew, too long have you sat in the shadows. I release you. Breathe free air, my friend. And in the same way in this life, the struggles that you and I have are not ultimately against Theodens, an awkward boss or a wayward child or a difficult partner or a political leader. They're not ultimately against Theoden. They're against Saruman. They are against the dark power behind the person you see in front of you. Now, clearly, that doesn't mean that you don't oppose people because sometimes you have to. Paul does it a lot. Jesus does it pretty fiery, I would say. 
You, you fool, you basket of snakes, you whitewashed tombs. Jesus opposes people, but it means that you, you don't see the person as the ultimate source of the evil. You see the struggle taking place through the person with spiritual powers behind them. And that affects your strategy and it affects your weaponry. So that's what you need to know. You need to know your struggle's not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual powers. And it means that what you need to wear is the armour of God. You need to wear the armour of God, verses 14 to 17. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, it's a famous list. And you've been around church any length of time, you've heard it. Probably a lot of the kids in this church have heard that list before. It's based on the armour that a Roman legionary might wear. Imagine in a movie like Gladiator or something like that. But let me highlight a few surprises, a few things about that list that are, even though it's quite well-known passage, things that are surprises. One or two of them surprised me as I was preparing this message. The first item... I find surprising. It is the belt of truth. What is the first item you would choose? So somebody's saying, right, go and pick up, you know, like um, that scene in the Hunger Games where all of the different characters, there's a whole stash of weapons in the middle of the field called a cornucopia and all of the, all the tributes have to run as fast as they can into the middle and pick up whatever weapon they want. Which weapon would you pick up first if you knew it was a fight to the death? You'd probably pick up a, a sword or a shield or something like that, something hostile or aggressive or like, you know. And yet Paul says, no, no, the first thing you need to pick up is the belt of truth. Why? Why does that come first? And the answer is because the devil fundamentally is a liar. The devil actually isn't primarily just out to try and kill you. The devil wants to lie to you. The word diabolos, which we translate devil, means liar, slanderer. So the first thing you need in your fight against the devil is the belt of truth. If you don't have the truth... You don't have any power against the devil and your trousers will fall down. And in fact, if you imagine being an ancient soldier, you could probably do without sometimes a breastplate or even a helmet or even a sword. But you try and run into battle without a belt and you are a sitting duck. You need the belt of truth in order to be able to fight the devil. It's the first thing you need. I actually experienced a kind of weird parable of this because a couple of years back, I came up to preach on a Sunday and for whatever reason, I just... I hadn't put on my belt. I get up very early in the morning and it's dark and I you know, leave, house at, leave, leave the house at six, get up to you know, the Catford site at half past seven or whatever, and I don't have my belt. So I had to go up during the 9.30 meeting and go up to Moses, one of the other pastors on the staff, and just said to him, Moses, our relationship is about to go to the next level. Can I borrow your belt? <laughs> like, are you all right living with that one for today? Because I can't just expose myself before all of these people. And you realize how vulnerable you are without a belt. Now, that's a trivial example, but if you're a warrior, your belt is not just keeps your trousers up, it's where you store your sword. It's vital. And truth stands that way for us. It's the first thing you need in your battle against the liar. That's a surprise to me, but it's important. You then put on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, and they cover your most vulnerable and vital organs. But here's another surprise. Both of those weapons, if you like, or both of those pieces of armour, the breastplate and the helmet, both of those things actually belong to God in Scripture. 
Do you ever notice that? So you go to Isaiah 59, verse 16, and it says, The Lord's own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Right? So when Paul says, I want you to take up the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, he's saying, these aren't yours. They come from the Saviour. Even righteousness, which Paul has already told us in this letter, when Quaker was preaching, we looked at this passage, you should put on righteousness, right? That's good, you should, but ultimately it doesn't belong to you. It doesn't come from you. It comes from the Lord God. And it's only because he is righteous and he is a saviour that you can put on the helmet of salvation, which is ultimately his, and the breastplate of righteousness, which ultimately comes from him. So that's a surprise. The two of these six pieces of armour belong to God in the first time we've come across them in Scripture. There's a third surprise. Think about the shoes. We fight with peace. Is that odd? Put on the armour, shoes of peace. Shoes of gospel peace. Right? You, st- you fight in spiritual warfare with peace. Sounds like a paradox. It is. We stand firm in spiritual war by wearing the peace gospel for shoes. Because the battle we face is not like earthly battles. It is a battle where it's like they are trying to declare war and I am declaring peace. And it's only by being having my shoes fitted with the gospel of peace that I am able to defend myself against him who wants to make war against my soul. Another surprise. The most prominent piece of armour in Paul's whole description is actually the shield. The shield of faith. That's the one that Paul says you should wear it in all circumstances and it's the only item where he describes its purpose. He says the shield of faith that you need to use in order to defend yourself against the flaming darts of the evil one. Now faith as we've seen in this series throughout, really, is central in Ephesians. It's, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, chapter 2 and verse 8. Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith, chapter 3 and verse 17. We will all attain to the unity of the faith, chapter 4 and verse 13. Now, faith is central throughout Ephesians, and in this section it's central as well, because, partly because the shield, of course, if you think about Roman soldiers, the shield is not primarily an individualistic thing. The shield is a way in which you defend not just yourself, but your fellow soldiers. Right? So you watch the Roman legions marching, and they get down behind their shields. They are not only guarding themselves, but their shield is actually guarding the person next to them on either side. And if there's a break in the armour, then the person next to them might snuff it, and not just them. It's a, it's a corporate solidarity implement, isn't it? It's a way of defending not just you, but everybody else. And faith is like that. When I stand in faith, I don't just protect myself. I protect people on either side of me. I protect my wife or my children or my friends or my church. I can protect people in my life group as I stand in faith. And the same thing is true when they stand in faith relative to me. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine collapsed with a brain tumour. It was very serious. And I imagine like many people, he thought, is he going to make it? I don't know. He's actually now doing much better, which is wonderful. But I met his father, who's in his 80s, just a couple of days after I'd heard the news. And I said to him, I'm I'm so sorry, we are all praying for you. And he said to me something that I hope I will never forget. He said to me, 80 plus years old, he looked at me and said, well, God is bigger than the problem. And then he walked into worship. As I heard him, I thought, "Your, your faith has acted like a shield for me today. 
And I, I, I find it it's so humbling when that kind of thing happens, isn't it? And it's probably happened to you before where someone else's faith in extraordinary circumstances has defended you against demonic attack and not just them. And so there is the shield of faith. And the final surprise in this list to me is the sword because Paul doesn't say what we sometimes think he says. Paul doesn't say that the sword is the spirit. He says it's the sword of the spirit or the sword belonging to the spirit. What he says the sword is, is the word of God. Right? Do you notice that? He said, and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He's not saying the Holy Spirit is like a weapon you wield. He's saying the word of God is the weapon you wield and it is the word of God of the spirit. It is the word that comes from or is inspired by and given to you by the Holy Spirit. And that, of course, the strange thing here is that the word is the only offensive weapon we have in the list. All the others are protecting you, right? Your helmet, your breastplate, your belt, your shield. They're all trying to stop you from getting killed by the enemy. The one aggressive weapon we have is the gospel. It's the, it's the word in which you might wield against the enemy and say, I'm going to speak words of life to the world around me and in doing so confront the devil on his own terms. So what do, you, what do you need to know? Your struggle's not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual powers. What do you need to wear? The armour of God. And then finally, what do you need to do? Right? We need to know our struggle and who our enemy is and we need to wear all of these, you know, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, God's word. But there's also something we need to do while we're wearing it. Verses 18 to 20. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which i'm an ambassador in chains that i may declare it boldly as i ought to speak we need to pray Paul couldn't state this much more strongly than he does here. Pray at all times, with all prayer and supplication, all perseverance, making supplication for all the spirits and also me. Right? If we're going to prevail in spiritual warfare, we need to know we're fighting the devil and we need to wear the armour of God. But the main thing we need to do is to pray. Now, obviously, there's a lot we could say about this and... We looked at prayer in some detail, actually, at the start of this last year. Do you remember that? Back before, you know, before COVID and everything, in the 21 days of prayer. Um, and it's, we're going to keep coming back to this theme. And we always will as a church, and rightly so. But for now, just notice this phrase. To that end, keep alert. Prayerfulness for Paul is bound up with being alert, with wakefulness. Turning that around, you could say that prayerlessness is lethargy or drowsiness. If we're going to pray effectively, we need to stay on our toes. We need to be alert, focused. And our habits of prayer may not always help us here, I suspect. Right? In the early morning, a comfy chair, eyes closed, alone, in silence. You think it's almost designed to make you sleepy. Right? If we're going to wage spiritual warfare in prayer, sometimes we're going to, we're going to need to keep alert. We're going to, you might find it helpful to pray out loud, eyes open, in the daylight, with others, while having a brisk walk. Right? That might be a more conducive setting to staying alert in prayer. And similarly, I, I, as a parent, I think this, why, do I, why is it that parents are taught that the main time you pray with your child is just as they're about to fall asleep? Why is that the thing we do? We go, you're just about to go to sleep now, let me pray. It's almost, is that why we yawn when we pray, I wonder? Is it bound up with, like, from childhood, we're taught prayer is drowsy. 
oh, I've, I've tried to kick against that with my boys. I grab them together and say, right, we're playing football. Okay, boys, come together at halftime. Let's just thank God for his goodness in being able to give us football and brothers and a dad who loves us. You might want to pray outside again. But just thinking through, how do we stay alert in prayer? Because there's a war on and you can't go into that war far, half asleep. We need to keep alert because we are at war not with people, but with a spiritual power who wants us to take off our armour and stop praying and forget we have an enemy in the first place and have a nice hot cup of Horlicks. That's what the devil wants for your life. And it drives him crazy when you do the opposite. When you are vigilant in prayer, when you put your armour on, when you are wakeful and when you stand firm in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would make us those who are vigilant, wakeful, mindful of who our enemy really is, putting on the armour of God. Lord, may we right now, even as we're hearing the word, may we now put on once again the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, take up the sword of the word of God. Lord, we pray, would you help us to make best use of the weapons that you have? And Lord, I also want to pray as Paul closes this letter, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters as we conclude this series. Peace be to all the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May grace be with all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen.